Thank you for choosing Hippie Pink Ferret. Please ready your tape while you listen to an advertisement for our latest release. You're listening to Dada or Nothing, a variety show about the visual and performing arts presented by Hippie Pink Ferret. I'm your host, Jojo, and this week we're conducting an interview. Please insert tape. Please insert tape. Please insert Reviewing. Label identified. Dada or Nothing, Season 1, Episode 4. On integrating theater techniques into early childhood education. Interview with Oldham, Madeline. Date September 27th, 2021. Launching record. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. I have Maddie Oldham from our previous episode on Eric Carl. I'm really like developing a, a fan base on your podcast now. <laughs> They're like, I know her. She had insight, but also a lot of jokes. She's the whole package. <laughs> she is a whole meal. So if you enjoyed Maddie's appearance before, you'll love her now. If not, skip to next week. <laughs> if, not, if not, just throw this episode uh, in the trash. Please, like, rate five stars, and don't listen. Anyway, Maddie is here to talk about her role as an educator and how that relates to her background in theater. Part one, portrait of a woman making treble. So what is your story? I started off as a performer at this nonprofit foundation that we will get into and then eventually moved on to being a teaching artist there. I recently graduated from Hofstra University out in the, the great old Long Island. I got a double major in early childhood and childhood education, which in the state of New York certifies you to teach all subjects, birth, which I think it's hilarious that they refer to it as birth through second grade, basically pre-K through sixth grade is what I'm certified to teach. And then I also got a Bachelor of Arts in Drama at the same time. So I've always I always had both of these things very much swirling together in my life and I knew when I went to college I wanted to find a school where I could in earnest study both because I wanted to find a way to use art as a teaching tool and use education as the center point for art to happen. The whole reason why I ended up at Hofstra was because a lot of the other colleges I was looking at they said well you can take education classes but if you want to do theater you have to be in their conservatory program. There's no way you'll be able to do both in earnest. You could do the club shows, you can audition for shows. I know what that means. That's not the culture. Was there ever a point in time where you felt like you had to pick one? I never felt like I had to pick one. And I think a lot of that comes from just my general philosophy of education, that it has to be multidimensional for it to be valuable to a student. If I was going to become a teacher, I was not going to be a traditional teacher in a classroom setting that was just going to say, okay, we're going to read this Edgar Allan Poe short story. We're going to analyze it for figurative language. And that's the end of it. It's like, no, it, in order for it to be valuable to a student, you have to make it valuable to them. So I always saw education and teaching as something creative for me rather than like a safety backup plan, which unfortunately is how I think it is looked at in a lot of industries. As someone who went to school for theater, so often did multiple people say, are you going to get like your master's in something else? I would answer these questions with, oh, I want to be a writer. And most of the time people would be like, well, you've already got your one creative thing. Why don't you study right. education? Education. Right. Education. Every single time was a consistent answer. Mm -hmm. And the fact that education is juxtaposed against creative fields really makes me itch because inherently, in order to be a successful educator, you have to be creative. Teaching is so hard and so complicated if you want to be exceptional at it. They're going to remember the teacher that turned that history assignment into a play or brought you on a field trip, even though that's a lot more work for a teacher to do, something I didn't know until I went to college. That's like a lot of 
work, but those are the teachers who took that extra step that made me want to pursue education. We've all had teachers that show up, read from the textbook, you learn the thing-ish. There are things about that academic nature that is fascinating, like learning about famous artists, learning about artist styles. That's super interesting, especially for the kids who are academically minded and love history. However, you lose the pure element of play that is so inherent with art that is the outlet for a lot of kids in school when they have to sit so rigid all day doing math the way the teacher tells them and they look forward to art class to say, I'm so excited because I get to just create and play. We need them to know why Van Gogh is a great artist. Like sure, but you also need them to play with oil pastels and feel what that feels like under their fingernails because that's the kind of sensory experiences that they're going to remember as they get older. It is so hard to teach little, little kiddos because this is where their brain is expanding miles a minute. The formative things that you do with them then will impact them for the rest of their lives. Beautiful in that you get to have this incredible impact and that's one of the reasons why I love teaching. But it's also so scary because I know from personal experience, my brother had a teacher in like first or second grade who did not make reading an exciting, magical thing. That year, I watched him stop liking to read. It was like pulling teeth to get him to read anything. He's never read a book for pleasure since. You as an educator, I absolutely get this vibe of having a lot of importance on the exploratory phase and making the most of that phase. 100%. Because that's when you're learning. I had a friend once. I heard her talking to her other friend on the phone like, oh yeah, she's doing this project. She's just like reading a children's book. Could you imagine your degree being so easy? I was like, literally have to write a 15-page paper about why this children's book is a good educational resource. I have to know what the author is doing to make this a valuable book to have in my classroom. And people just assume, oh my God, you teach kindergarten. That's so easy. And you helped run an acapella group. I struggled being in the acapella group in college yeah. <laughs> because my major was double the amount of time oh, of yeah. other majors. Our classes had to end before a certain time because our afternoons were for the theater department, which was intense because not only did that take away extracurriculars, that's why I I didn't end up double majoring is because it was such a commitment just doing this one major. Oh yeah. How did you manage doing all of that at the same time? I had to learn how to prioritize in terms of my academics, what was important. I'm creative in how I retain information. If I don't have time right now to read 30 pages on this topic, let me find a podcast that's going to talk about that philosopher in education. Let me find a YouTube video that I can watch while I'm getting ready to go to rehearsal just so that I have that bit of background knowledge. I really relied on my ability to be very present in class, take really good notes, and then to be an active collaborator amongst my peers and say like, hey, I have two hours in in the middle of the day. Can we get together and work on this together? So that way I'm making myself accountable to somebody else. In terms of time management, I'm like really struggling to give a concise answer. I'm thinking and I'm like, okay. I also worked at the daycare on campus three days a week and we were required to do five semesters of working on crews for shows. So I would always pick the costume shop against the fact that I had no time to be taking that crew but I just loved working with the people there so I was like I'll make it work. Sometimes somebody would go on box office crew and be like actually I'm changing my major to theater management because I'm really groovy with this. Right and And that's awesome. And that's great but that isn't leading someone through their education. That same kid could be put into the box office and have crippling depression for the rest of the semester. I think a toxic culture of theater departments in college is that there's not enough emphasis 
emphasis on how to foster that routine of individual well-being and how to cope with rejection, which is literally the whole industry. They basically just tell you like, yeah, you're gonna get rejected and that's hard. And then in college, in a safe place where you can get rejected and build those skills, where is the class only for students that did not get cast to help them foster those skills? Where is the class that's like exploring theater in other areas? Other majors would have this problem as well. It's that they give us this toolbox, give us a plan how to build a house. We know how to build this one version with all these tools that we were given and not how these tools could be repurposed to make something completely different. How do you feel now that you're on the other end of it? Oh, I feel absolutely exhausted. I was running on fumes since I was in high school. I felt this responsibility to be smart and to be good and intelligent. So much of my identity is being a student and learning and gaining this information in order to then use it to do something. Right now, I just feel absolutely exhausted by holding up so many plates in the air and now I'm like, oh God, no plates, but my arms, they're stuck here. Very difficult job being an educator that has to be accessible to children. And so let's use this as a segue to talk about Perfect. the art program yeah. because you're integrating your creative background into this challenge. Part two, the art program. The ARC program is a character development curriculum that was developed through the nonprofit 1214 Foundation, which has a companion performing arts program called New Arts, which is how Jojo and I met. It's our origin story as well as a huge piece of my teacher puzzle. My job working with this program started when I was a junior in high school and was lucky enough to be cast in the ensemble of School of Rock, then worked on the crew of Wizard of Oz. And as a student of the ARC program, I felt it resonated so strongly with what I believed it was to be a good person and just was absolutely inspired by the community of this organization. I, I would go to these sessions, soak up the information, and then during the school year, find myself constantly referring back to those skills as a way to get through senior year of high school. Once I went to college and began studying theater and education, I was reflecting on my experience and thought that I am absolutely called to still be involved in this organization, maybe not as a performer since I'm now in college, but I know that I believe so strongly in the message of ARC and the value of what they were teaching because I saw myself use those skills in order to maintain my own well-being. Having those tools, some kid that might not have those readily available, that this program could be that outlet. So I reached out to the foundation and asked if I could volunteer as a teaching artist. That summer I would watch the teacher work and bring ideas like, well, what if we, what if we taught this but we reframed it to the idea of Harry Potter? That would be so exciting. And so the woman I was shadowing was gracious enough to let me take the lead on some things and the kids loved it because they were doing similar activities every summer, which is great to reinforce those skills, but then you have kids that have come back several years and it becomes stale for them. I know you probably had that experience being a performer with the company for a while. The 1214 Foundation and New Arts were started after the Sandy Hook tragedy as a way for kids in the area to heal through art. So it always, at its inception, was about using theater and education to work through this horrific event, but also to have a theatrical experience that is very motivating, uplifting, and helps the kids see joy and excitement again. ARC stands for Aspire, Reach, Confidence, and it's taught in modules that scaffold so that you can build throughout the summer when they were working on this theater program. So they would work on the show and then go to these classes at the same time. We start off talking about character strengths that you have with you in your toolbox all the time. We refer to the VIA program because they have 24 character strengths that they believe are foundational in every person. Go and take the quiz to read a little bit 
about their organization. I really like the perspective that VIA has on it about there is no such thing as a weakness. There are just strengths that you're better at. Yeah, strengths that you constantly reach for and strengths that maybe you don't have to use on the daily, but that doesn't mean you don't have them. You have to find ways within your day to be intentional about using judgment and using prudence that maybe you normally wouldn't think about. Then we talk about emotions and how emotions are just data that we interpret as a way to understand how we are experiencing the world, debunk the idea that being sad or mad is not a good thing. And we talk about how you can develop an individual plan to regulate those emotions for when you're feeling something that is too strong or going on for too long. And then we talk about confidence, how to identify the three zones of confidence, your comfort zone, your stretch zone, your panic zone, how to identify what activities are in each of these zones and how you can push yourself to go into your stretch zone, which is the area in which you learn and grow and experience new things and really get to become the person that you want to be. Those tools stay with us all the time. Then we talk about the concept of resilience and what it means to bounce back from a challenge. What does it feel like when we hit a dip in our life or hit a challenge that really knocks us down? How do we then work ourselves back up from that and use the skills we have to become okay again? Once we've defined resilience, practiced those skills in combination, we then discuss grit, which is those incremental steps that you take every day to get to a goal that you have or where you want to be emotionally or in general. And so we break those concepts down for students ages five all the way through college. That conversation looks very different from five to 11 to 14 to 20. It has to be different, otherwise it won't be meaningful. Part of my educational philosophy is about making a topic meaningful to your specific group of people and understanding why that is relevant to them. You were at the helm for two years, creating the curriculum and running a group of teachers, making sure that there was the integration of ARC into the regular performing arts program. So I was able to work on the curriculum with the founder, bringing in my own educational background and knowing how you scaffold learning. This is what good teaching is. Here are educational philosophers that support what I am doing. I'm not just like pulling random stuff out of my ass to say, oh, but I know how to do it. I tried to find ways to, by sitting in on the rehearsal process, point out to students and have those small one-on-one conversations where I was say, hey, I noticed you using this strength when you did this. Did you feel that in your body? They might say, oh no, I never noticed that. And I would put it in their heads and say, I'm gonna come chat with you later. For the rest of the day, I want you to be really intentional in thinking about how you are using your character strength while you're doing this scene. And I would watch that student, I would observe them. And I would see how they were being such a giving performer. And then I would go around to other members of the cast and point that out and say, hey, look at Sarah. Sarah's doing such a great job using this strength. Isn't that awesome? And so I would go around. I had other teachers that would help me out with this. I had little tickets that they would go around and say, hey, I caught you using this strength. Then when we would get to the sessions, we would always start the session with how did you use what we talked about last time? How did you use that this week? Or where did you see that in someone else? Didn't have to be an actor. Could be on the tech team. Could be the director. Could be the music director. Once you were making those direct connections for the kids, they would start to notice things and then point it out to me. We would talk about how you feel feelings in your body and how your body responds to emotions as a way to recognize them within yourself and in others. And I told them when I'm nervous or I'm feeling a little tense, I tend to twist my rings. That's something I've observed about myself. So then when I feel myself exhibiting that behavior, that's a check-in that I can have and say, oh, why am I feeling so nervous? Is there something I can do about that? I would have little like 11-year-olds coming up to me being like, Maddie, I noticed you were twisting your rings. If there's anything I could do to help you, let me know and I and I can do it. And I was like, my heart, my little heart. Precious little baby. Precious little baby. 
things like that were a great moment of integration, but I also went through the script to pull out scenes or moments and then develop full-on lessons that were specifically targeting why that show was connected to the topics. And so the kids who are already experts on the play because they're in it and they're passionate and they're ready to perform it, now they're saying, okay, wait, how does that connect to confidence? They're having this moment of synergy where they're seeing it come together and not only are they understanding confidence more, they're understanding the scene more because they focused on why the scene is successful. As a teacher, it really makes me feel great when I'm able to see them draw those connections. I remember there being a lot of theater games. We were able to take these theater games, take this structure that the kids already knew and really enjoyed, and set it in this educational academic topic. They didn't just go in making their own choice, they went in under the lens of a character strength that they were given at random. A little, little teacher secret, they weren't given at random. Whoa. I know, I had observed throughout our conversations, throughout working with them, which students were really connecting with it and loving it, and which students were like, just figuring it out. That's just my informal assessing that I had done throughout our discussions and other activities. Then when we got to that culminating game, it's a formal assessment where I'm seeing you take what we learned and apply it into this game. Show me that you understand what humility is or that you understand what love of learning is by acting it. I gave the strengths that were a little more abstract and a little bit harder to the students that I saw were really engaged with the topic. And I gave the students that were just getting their feet wet in the strengths that I thought would naturally integrate more. Not to say like they needed something easier, but to have the feeling in their body of successfully achieving that is gonna help them connect with the material and understand it. If I'm giving a kid who's new the strength of bravery, they're gonna be able to jump right into the game and be this like knight in shining armor coming in and everyone's like, wow, Max did such a good job using bravery. Now Max is feeling really good about themselves. Max is feeling like, I get this because I just did it. But if I give Max spirituality, Max is new and doesn't understand the strength of spirituality, didn't even understand how we defined it as a group, for a while, I've lost Max. I was very intentional in making those choices. And I think that's like a fun teacher secret is anytime something is random, baby, it's not fully random. Like they've been watching you. They know what's happening. Like it's a word that sums up. I feel everything you just said is accessibility. Because we are not fans of accessibility being viewed as lowering the bar. Yeah. Because it's not about lowering standards. Speak it plain. Yeah, it's differentiating in order to prioritize accessibility. You're not lowering the standard, you're lowering the barrier to entry. I should always be wanting to extrapolate, always should be wanting to push it further for the kids that are ready. Never should I be saying, oh, you're so behind, you're not getting it. I'm teaching to both my lowest and my highest student at all times. The culture of the classroom should support the idea that we might all be working on the same topic, but we might be approaching it different ways because we need different things. And that doesn't mean that Samantha's project is better than mine because she made a short film and I wrote a paper. You know what's amazing? You're incredibly articulate. And so you wrote a paper and I loved your paper. And I love her short film because that's where she feels she can shine. And giving the kids the opportunity to identify within themselves how to show success, that level of empowerment, man oh man, I think that's so critical is to give kids the opportunity to identify within themselves what success looks like and how to show that. You had mentioned earlier that talking to, say, a five-year-old about a certain topic and talking to a 16-year-old, two very different conversations with the same point. It's important for little kids in their development to experience learning using as many of their senses as possible. I need you to show me with your clenched fist how anger feels so tense, so crazy. I need you to feel like what happy feels like. What does a sad song 
songs sound like. Now we're listening, we're using our ears, we're engaging with all of them in a way that they can understand because it needs to be tangible. Then you need to show that topic in a piece of media. Children's books are the best way at that age to communicate things. So we're gonna read When Sophie Gets Angry and then we're gonna stop as we read and talk about what we notice is happening to Sophie and have we ever felt that way? What should we do when, when we feel that way? What should Sophie have done? Even though that sounds like a simple question, that's a really high level question for a five-year-old to say, well, when she got angry instead of this, she should have done that. Those are the questions that are like informal assessment. I want you to understand these emotions and I want you to be able to communicate what to do when you feel them. So if you have those lesson goals in mind, then the whole time you're working with them, it's slowly and surely building up so that they can answer that question or perform that task. Once you get up to that middle school age, now they're starting to have life experiences that they personally can tie back to these things. And when you make it personal to the student, which is perfect with new arts and having the show right there for you to connect it to, that's when they're gonna make the connection. I like to provide different scenarios for them of this person was experiencing this emotion and now we're like making a plan for these random people that don't exist, right? But we're saying, how can you use your experiences to give advice to somebody else? Because now they're empowered to say, oh, I wanna help people. That's something I wanna do. You're building towards that abstract. Obviously you still wanna have a variety of ways for them to engage with it. Like I always like to have a visual arts component and just opportunities for kids of different learning styles to thrive. I always think it's way more important to give an option for a project than a test because here's like a list of criteria. In any way you want, show off to me how well you know this skill. Because when you ask a middle schooler to show off, they're ready. If you love to write, I want you to write me a song. If you love to illustrate, make me a comic. Like a lot of options is great for middle schoolers where elementary kids, they don't know how to pick options yet. They need it to be a straighter path with a lot of things on the path. Whereas middle school, you need lots of paths that get to the same place. With high schoolers, which is obviously my, my least comfortable age because they're all taller than me because I am 5'2 for all of the, the listeners of this audio podcast. Sorry if you couldn't notice that my voice was 5'2. If you, yeah, if you couldn't tell my voice was 5'1 and 3 quarters, 5'2 if I stretch, here's the info. 5'2 <laughs> in the morning before the bones settle. Before the bones settle, exactly. Exactly. For high schoolers, in theater specifically, they're ready to connect with each other. They want to have those big philosophical conversations. High school is a big time of answering why. Like my teachers that explained off the bat the purpose of what we were learning, I was way you know more engaged because it felt meaningful rather than saying, well, today we're just going to talk about confidence. I was the first kid that was like, why? I'm here for an hour and a half. Why? The ability to be like, okay, guys, on the level, this is exactly why I'm setting up the yeah. conversation the way that we are. They're very good about the expectations because when you give them, this is what I'm doing behind the curtain. This is how I'm structuring everything. You can show them one-tenth of your process and they feel like they've been let in on a secret. Exactly. Obviously, a case-to-case basis will prove or disprove that. But I think that's why high schoolers are so excited when they have like a substitute teacher in their 20s. I was a substitute teacher during my last semester of college because... I I didn't have enough to do, clearly. I had a free five minutes on on every other Thursday, and I just needed to fill that. I was going crazy. Literally. No, like, literally. Literally, which is horrific, horrific. I think about the work I could have done on my mental health and I just chose not to, but it's fine. I loved subbing, to be clear. All the little sixth grade girlies were like, oh my gosh, I love her outfit. I'm like, thank you. Also, this is why we're learning this in math. They're like, what? I was like, oh, does your teacher not tell you that? That's so awkward. I'm like, oh, she's cool, she's cool, she's cool. Sixth graders, I'll just say it. When you're in a public school, they are scary. And so I just had to be like, listen, I'll get us the good field at recess, but like y'all need to do your work. Let's make a transactional deal. I want to have fun. If you would like to have fun, that is your choice. Hippie Pink Ferret apologizes for the interruption. 
It is time for the service's hourly scheduled test of the emergency advertisement broadcasting system. Your program, Dada or Nothing, will resume following its conclusion. This concludes the test. Resuming program. Were there any unique challenges working with kids that had such great trauma? It's really important as a teacher to take those factors into account and see them not as challenge, but as reasons that the success will be so much more meaningful than opportunity rather than a challenge. With that specific group of kids, they were conscious of the fact that the things that they were doing were not only a fun thing for them, but also they were going to walk away gaining tools that they will be able to use throughout the school year. And so I always tried to give as many scenarios and opportunities that were real to them and that would be something they would experience so that when they got to school, they could say, oh, wait, 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 we talked about this. Then I remember something and can approach it better. And the more you practice that, the more it just becomes second nature. I'm like actively practicing this skill that I learned and then taught over and over and over again. I found every year it was very difficult to teach the concept of resilience and the concept of grit. When it comes to resilience, you can explain it but it's very hard to understand it until you have experienced the need to be resilient. And all of these kids, yeah, they have a connecting moment that they needed to be resilient for, but we didn't want to constantly go back to that very real trauma. As much as we want to use it as a foundation for teaching, we don't want to use it as the example because that's very visceral. You don't want to have the exact trigger of what you're doing in the scene because it'll just swallow you up. I have an absolute perfect example of that. As a personal anecdote, I did a production of Hair, the musical. A great show. Hair, 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 hair. I played Claude for anyone who's familiar with the show. I believe in God and I believe that God believes in Claude. And that was you. There's a lot of the more spicier content in the second act of the show. I don't think that's a controversial statement to say. Nope, that's accurate. (laughs) One of the moments that was very interesting to tackle was a transition from the scene where Claude is talking to his weird facsimile of his parents. There was this little moment where all the actors linked arms and they started chanting Ring Around the Rosie. Since I was Claude, I was in the middle of all of them. There'd be a gunshot for every single person and they would drop. And our director thought it'd be really intense and really emotionally evocative, which, not wrong. Not wrong. He was not incorrect. This is such a visceral moment for me. I'm crying. This is obviously great acting. This is good art. When I really thought about it later, I miss read being able to tap into this part of myself as processing. I had to hold it together in the middle of the show. I'm hurting myself mentally. Literally. Misled, not by my director who asked if this was an okay move and I said yes, but the reason why I said yes, even though it was having this effect on me, was because previously I had been taught that you need these suffering experiences to be a real actor. Mm -hmm. And listen, I have no problem using the dark shit. Sometimes that can be very cathartic. But going back to what we learn in ARC, this wasn't my stretch zone. I feel like there are so many places where people try to convince you you're in your stretch zone when really you're in your panic zone. There are ways you can use that for your art that don't involve self-harm. So much of it revolves around taking care of yourself before and taking care of yourself after and knowing setting a boundary with yourself does not make you less of a performer. While it is true that being in our stretch zone 
zone helps things that were previously in our panic zone be in our stretch zone. Our panic zone is not productive whatsoever. No. And I don't know if that kind of feeling will ever be in my stretch zone, and that's okay. That's such a hard thing for kids to internalize when they're in the arts. When we talk about confidence, we usually establish it in this visual structure of three concentric circles. What's in each person's zone looks different. So something that could be in my comfort zone, like cooking a meal for my family, that might be in a stretch zone for somebody else. The one in the center being the smallest, referring to your comfort zone, which is doing things that don't require you to put a lot of effort into them. This is where we're able to recharge and refresh and prepare ourselves to take on challenges. But we don't want to stay there for too long because then we're going to be remaining stagnant and not growing as people. The next zone that you step out into is your stretch zone. This is what we also refer to as our growth zone because this is where we do the things that are a little bit scary, but we know a place for us to advance ourselves. When you do go out into your stretch zone, whether you are successful or not at that task, you yourself are growing in some capacity. So that's why we always encourage kids to step into their stretch zone and to try things that are a little bit challenging because that's where you are going to build on these strengths that you have that maybe you don't use all the time, right? Then your panic zone is never somewhere that you really choose to go unless you're like doing something for adrenaline. Panic zone is a place where you end up because of the physical sensations of your body, like the emotions as data, as we mentioned previously. Your body and your brain and your heart are telling you that whatever you're doing is not okay, is not something that you can take on and not as a sign of weakness, just as like, I'm not yet ready to take this on. I need to pause. I need to think about what character strengths can I use? What emotional regulation tools do I have to bring myself out of the panic zone and back into a stretch zone or the comfort to recharge? Giving the kids the opportunity to learn how to properly engage with those emotions before they're asked to tap into them in acting is going to let them experience that in a lot like safer and more comfortable of a way. We talk about this in ARC as well, reminding yourself that you are so many things like, yes, I do that and I also do this and I also do this. Not in like a side hustle way, but just cultivating your passions because anything you do, you can use somewhere else. Part three, additional commentary. I think a lot about like social intelligence as a strength. You can tell some people who have really put energy and effort into being a socially intelligent person and the people that do not. Foster the classroom environment where you're making it a priority for kids to engage with their emotions, especially young boys, to engage with their emotions and that it's okay to feel something. If you start integrating that to kids early on, that's the kind of skill set that gets you more kids that are going to stop the bullying when it happens, that are going to ask the insightful questions about like human rights and that's what helps develop them into young competent citizens and good people not just oh we're really smart kindergartners because we know all our letters we also know when we have a temper tantrum these are the steps we take to become okay they know they're gonna go out in the hallway do some dinosaur stomps they know we're gonna take deep breaths and he's gonna have to tell me why he's angry before we can do anything else if you're not ready take the time but we develop that practice so when you give kids the opportunity to really learn how to do it, you're setting them up not only for success in your classroom, but like success in life. Do you have any criticisms on how you were trained as an educator? When learning about teaching literacy to kids, the professor that I had very much focused on this concept of whole in whole reading, which I fully agree with this idea that if you give students reading materials on topics that they are interested in and consistently give them material that they have a connection to, eventually they will read, period, point blank. I find ways to teach 
skills through the lens of whatever that kid is passionate about. So if I'm teaching reading comprehension to my student who loves Pokemon, we're comparing and contrasting Pokemon types. We're reading about the founder of Pokemon and answering comprehension questions about that because that's what's gonna make sense to him and that's how he's gonna engage with that skill. I think a lot of schools don't see it that way, that they need so much data to do anything. And I get it, but that makes it very hard to teach in the way you want to teach because you have to find ways to get this data and they say you have to get this data in this way, but we're not gonna give you time to do it. My teacher preparation program and a lot of others don't adequately give you the tools of how to work around those problems that literally are in every school. They don't give us the tools to be like, and this is what you should do in that situation, unless you ask directly. A lot of educator preparation programs teach in an idealistic way, in the perfect format, the perfect structure. The problem is then you get into schools and you have to work with like specific curriculum or your creativity is stifled because they need you to be hitting certain pacing requirements for students to take state exams. These fantastic aspirational goals that you talk about in your preparation courses, you're not able to integrate them in the same way that you thought you'd be able to because there is simply either no time, no freedom. The original sin of education is, yes, we want to be able to ingrain this information into somebody. How do you quantify that? If I gave these results to a third party, they would understand the level that we're working with here. And not for malicious reasons, because if you see a bunch of kids are doing really poorly in one school versus another school, well, what's giving? Why are these kids doing so poorly on what essentially should be the same curriculum in the same time? Right. And that allows you to address problems. So it's not me being like, eh, well, I know everything about education and you're doing things wrong. Right. Especially if we want to talk about students in marginalized communities, if we want to like really expand this to that bigger conversation mm-hmm. of inequality in education and the fact that funding goes to schools that do well on tests, which those are the schools that don't need the money. It's the schools that don't do well that need the money. If you're in the state of Massachusetts and your school does poorly on their state test, oops, less money this year. So you already now have less resources to help the kids improve on those skills to get better. But at the same time, especially with things like theater and how they integrate with education, the biggest grinding of gears that I noticed during my education is how do you quantify how well I'm doing as an actor? How do you grade me in acting class? Which helps create that stereotype that you were talking about of like, that sounds easy, you have to read a children's book. Maybe my integrations worked, maybe they didn't. And then all of a sudden I have to write my study about the fact that what I did didn't work. The school is like, you're kids are not doing well, therefore you're not good enough as a teacher because they didn't do well on a standardized test that is not developed to yield success from students. People see tenure as this horrible thing. Tenure is a great thing. Maybe I have a conversation if I get too out there, but I'm not gonna get fired for branching out a little bit. Having tenured positions at schools depends on the budget because you have to pay tenured teachers a higher salary because it comes from working at the school for a certain number of years. It's a whole process. If you are a teacher, you're gonna wanna go teach in a district that has the money to offer tenure tracks and to offer enough of them to where you have a community of tenured teachers who all have that same philosophy. They're not gonna flock to the areas that really need the support, that don't have the funding, who really need teachers that are motivated. It's not that they're not valuing education, it's that they don't have the money. So if they don't have money to fund tenured teachers, they're losing out on really great candidates. All the kids who would so benefit from understanding these integrations with art because maybe it's all that one kid needs to really understand math. And your teacher preparation program is telling you to go 
somewhere where you can get tenure because that's the metric of success as a teacher. All those wonderful ideas about education, all those great theories, and then throwing them in the bin because you need to focus on how to get these kids to test well or else you're not going to get paid, my dude. The same districts that aren't offering tenure tracks, shocker, don't have money for arts education programs. Those are not seen as viable options, especially if they're like, well, if you want to get out of this school to prison pipeline, you can't study art. Telling fifth graders, no, 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 you need to get a job. It's important to recognize that like for so many kids, art is viewed as a privilege and not a right. It's viewed as a fun thing you should do if you ever have free time and not as a means to having a higher understanding of a concept. There goes your next Van Gogh. There goes your next Matisse because they simply didn't have the space to explore it nor the privileges um, afforded to them. The kids that need to see Hamilton and black and brown actors talking about a history that they were so often written out of. If the show is only affordable to rich white New Yorkers, what is the point? Why are we making this art and making these messages if we can't make it accessible to people? I'm being reminded of how important that integrated work is and how necessary it is right now because we're all experiencing this international generational trauma because of the pandemic. Social emotional learning, which is like the hot button thing right now. It's weird to say something is trendy in education, but like that's trendy. Every school wants to have an SEL program. Social emotional learning to shorthand it SEL. I was just about to be like, what the hell is SEL? I know that Sesame Street and other children's programming is no longer just sprinkling it in with their content. They're making it like a main focus because kids need that direct conversation about, yeah, we're all feeling a little more anxious. How do we work on that? How do we normalize anxiety for kids? Because as a kid who was very anxious, boy, oh boy, oh boy, I didn't believe anyone else felt that way. The field of education has evolved so much, even in the last like 20 years, 10 years, five years, you're going to work with colleagues who maybe don't think it's important to have as much of an emphasis on that kind of accessibility that we've been talking about, who don't think that you need to be creative. I know just from working with kids in so many different areas that if you don't believe what you're doing is important, they absolutely will not believe you. Kids pick up on that immediately. Instantly. Instantly. Oldham, Madeline, downloaded. Now archiving in the collective unconscious. Maddie, thank you so much again for joining me. Oh my gosh, thank you for letting me rant and rave about my passions. I'm learning so much from you. Are Uh, you a teacher? I don't know if you could tell that by the everything about me. but (laughs) You may refer to me as Miss Oldham. Every state has a arts education page on the state website. Go check it out and see where you can either attend or support arts programs in your state because it's very important, especially in schools. Thank you for listening to Say It With Me Now. Dada or nothing. End of record. We here at Hippie Pink Ferret appreciate your business. Please enjoy this free advertisement for the audio services you just used. Dot All or Nothing is a production of Hippie Pink Ferret. And I've been JoJo, your host. Thanks again to my guest, Maddie Oldham. Sources and links, such as one to a transcript, can be found in the show notes. If you like what you heard, why not keep up to date with our studio on Facebook or Instagram at Hippie Pink Ferret. That is H-I-P-P-I-E Pink Ferret. If you really like what you heard, consider becoming a patron or making a one-time PayPal donation. You'll get a shout-out, unlock exclusive content, and every bit of your generosity allows me to keep the lights on and provide more content. I do write, edit, and produce everything myself right now, so any little bit you can provide to the field of edutainment is very much appreciated. Custom music by Alec Rice. Additional songs and sound effects provided by Descript, Envato Elements, Mixkit, VoiceChanger.io, VoiceGenerator.io, and Zapsplat.com. 
All audio used is free to use or properly licensed. Again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen. Remember to find reasons to have art in your life. You can be a wine snob, but that doesn't mean that you get to make wine really expensive. Literally. <laughs> and me never having a Pinot Grigio, simply because you feel like it's... Don't gatekeep the Pinot. <laughs> Listen, you might be drinking a nice Sauvignon Blanc, and I'm going to be drinking my cheap-ass barefoot Chardonnay. And that's and, fine. <laughs> and that's fine. It's only champagne if it's from champagne. Okay, oh, God, yeah. don't get me started. Girl, I prefer Prosecco anyway. Facts.